Well, if you have your Bibles already, or if you haven't, turn to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I suspect, honestly, uh, while there are some, certainly some challenges in understanding this text, I don't think that's going to be the main problem of the text. I think the main problem of this text is that we're not going to like what it says and we're not going to look at our lives long enough to be convicted by the Holy Spirit through this word. This is a brutal section of scripture. James pulls no punches. And you're not gonna like that. You're not gonna be like the fact that the Bible tells you that some of us, probably all of us, are engaged in evil judgments of other people. That's not what you got out of bed for today, is it? Oh, good. I'm an evil judger of other people. Thanks be to God. <laughs> but we need to deal with it. And thankfully, we're celebrating communion after this. So we can have a time of confession and then be reminded that God's grace for us is, is available to sinners like us. And so what we deal with this morning is the problem of partiality. And I want to ask and answer three questions about the problem of partiality. I'm going to answer three questions and then I want us to give us the remedy for dealing with the problem of partiality that I suspect all of us struggle with. Probably struggle with more deeply than we want to admit this morning. So the first question, what is partiality? Take a look at verse 1 of James 2. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In verse 1, when that word partiality is a very interesting word, right? It actually literally means receiving the face. It's about looking at someone, just looking at someone's face, and then making a judgment about that person based on external uh, criteria only, and particularly, as James will point out, making judgments about a person based upon criteria that has nothing to do with how God looks at people, nothing to do with how the Bible defines people, nothing to do with how the gospel defines people, and has everything to do with worldly standards of judgment and, and, and discrimination that we, we fall into when we look simply at the face of another person in a superficial way. That's what James is talking about. Now James is going to further help us to understand what this is by giving us an illustration. Verse 2, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. Again, notice the only thing that you know about these individuals is one looks like they're wealthy and the other looks like they're poor. But that's a very superficial way to look at people. That's how the world can do it. And apparently they're coming into an assembly. It may have been actually a synagogue where believers in Jesus were able to meet. Uh, James is probably written very early, so that could very well have been the case. Certainly it's describing coming into a group of believers, followers of Jesus Christ. Someone looks wealthy, someone looks poor, and all kinds of partiality begins to happen. Verse 3, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there or sit down at my feet. 
Notice what James then describes, answering further the question, what is partiality? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's partiality. Someone is dressed in a certain way. You make a mental judgment of them. And that mental judgment, not based on the Bible, not based on how God says, not based on what the gospel identity of another human being is, and then you decide to make changes in the way you engage that person based on your external, partial, superficial, worldly judgments of another human being. Now, this is probably a good verse for the ushers, (laughs) you're an usher, this thing's talking to you. You're the welcome team. But of course, simply the way James describes this, this is one example of partiality, but there are so many others. We make judgments all the time about people, superficially. I mean, sometimes we do it in terms of age, right? I remember what it was like when I was 16. Everybody over 30, I thought probably should be put in hospice or something. I, you know, I, 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 didn't, I, I wanted to look for my peers. I wanted to look for people who looked like me, who are my age. That's partiality. And then, of course, we can do it with, 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 with children, right? We, we can come into this place, and there's all kinds of children here. There's probably over 120 children, uh, you know, 18 and under, who are here in church, middle school and high school students. And as an adult, it's easy to look past them and to say, I don't need to, I, I'm not going to youth group, so I'm going to talk to people who look like me, who are my age. Some of you, as we've been trying to encourage families to come into the sanctuary for worship, which is the right decision, some of you, the minute a baby starts crying, you make evil judgments about that family. Yeah, I know you do. You go like, oh, get that baby out of here. That's partiality. Thank God the next generation's in church. Get over yourself. It's interesting. When you're a parent of a screaming baby, you freak out when your child makes noise, okay? You just do. You know, shh, stop. And it's really bad. You know, you got your four-year-old, shut up and listen to the grace of God. You know, it, 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 it doesn't work. I've noticed that as a grandparent, I'm totally different. I was in a church service this past week. I was out of town. I was with the church service with my granddaughter, Haley. She made some noise. She talked out loud. She spoke in tongues, and I didn't care. It's nice to be a grandparent. You're relaxed, but we all ought to be relaxed. We do it politically. Oh, my goodness. This this country today is more divided over politics than ever before. We can't even treat each other with any kind of modicum of respect, but unfortunately, that worldly divisive sort of judgment of people comes right into the church. I'm sure it does. I know it does. You find out somebody in your small group is, you know, to the right of Attila the Hun, you know, politically. And you're to the left of Bernie Sanders. And you can't deal with them. You can't be with them. You judge them 
with evil thoughts, James says. And of course, with ethnicity, we all tend to want to hang around the people that look like us and that, that act like us and talk like us. We do it with education. Oh, we do it. Oh, this is mid-Jersey, it's the worst place in the world. We judge people where you went to school, you know. I remember the, the, the conversations I had with people when I told my daughter she was going to Covenant College and people went, oh, oh, didn't make it into the Ivies, did she? I mean, they didn't say that, but that's what it looked like they were saying. Of course, I was judging them while they were judging me. So many different ways. You know, with ethnicity, we, we, we tend to hang around the people that, that are like us, that look like us, that dress like us, that, that have the same education. And James would say, when we make these judgments in our minds that are worldly, unbiblical, not gospel-centered, James says these distinctions that you make in your head that begin to affect the way you deal with another person is evil. It's evil. That's what he says. And yet we all do it. We don't even have to say anything really. But we do it. It's a story, and I, I think it's accurate, the story was told about Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi. Who was interested in Christianity and actually tried to attend a particular church And the word was that he was intrigued by Christianity because he thought it might be able to overturn the caste system in India. So he went to the church. He was told he was not welcome because it was for high caste Indians and Mahatma Gandhi was not in that high caste and it was also for whites only. And he was not allowed to go to the church. Later, apparently, Gandhi said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Dr. Tony Evans, some of you may have listened to him, great preacher from a great seminary, the one I went to. Talks about in, in, in the early 70s, he was a guest of one of his professors at a very prominent church in Atlanta. And he shows up at the church. It's 1970. I'm not talking about 1870. I'm, I'm talking about 1970, Right? which doesn't seem that long ago for me, but I guess it is. But. And after the service, uh, Dr., Dr. Tony Evans was so moved by the, the sermon, and there was an invitation to come forward. He came down forward to rededicate his life for Christ. He was the only dark face in that congregation. And when he came forward, the deacons went crazy. And were really concerned. Why is this African-American, what is he going to, is he going to join the church? Is he going to get married and bring his family to the church? Is his family going to grow up with our kids? And oh, well, what else? Oh, you know. I think we all need to take a good hard look at how the world has infected the way we view other people. That is what partiality is. I think we're all engaged in it on some level. May God help us. There's a second question. Is why is showing partiality so wrong? 
Why is James so exercised by this? Why is he calling us, you know, you guys are evil. You got judges with evil thoughts. Well, look at verses 5 through 7. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? In other words, the reason partiality is so wrong because it is antithetical to how God views the poor or how God views anybody. When we show partiality, we are acting, acting inconsistent, inconsistently with the God who, whose name we bear. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 1, another passage that's really important for us to see. Speaking about how God views the, the outcast, how God views the poor, the marginalized. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Paul is writing here. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God clearly pours out his unconditional love on people who have limited resources. But according to Paul, it's not just the poor economically, it's, it's all of the marginalized. God ha- delights to bring those individuals to himself, and he does. But there might even be more to this phrase than even that. I mean, certainly that. It's interesting that generally speaking, when the gospel moves into a, a culture for the first time, the people who are on a human level, I know God is sovereign in salvation. I'm reformed, so work with me here. But it's interesting that oftentimes the people that on a human level are more receptive to the gospel are the people who are the most marginalized. It's the poor who find the gospel of Jesus Christ massively attractive. It's, it's women largely. Women have always have been marginalized and have been mistreated. They find the gospel irresistible. The people who the world says, you don't measure up, on a human level, find it hard to resist a gospel message that says if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, you're given a new identity, the God of the universe loves you and, and values you. And while those that are wealthy and those that are powerful, often at a human level anyway, look at the gospel and say, I don't need that. What's so great about heaven? My life on earth is pretty good now. Where the poor person says, this world's no good. But I, I'm going to trust this Jesus who said he's going to remake that world in the future and I'll be part of that. When we show partiality, we act completely inconsistent with the grace of God. We are com- acting completely different than what the gospel of Jesus Christ commands us to be. We are acting completely opposite of our God. And that's why James says this is evil when you show partiality. Because the very people who bear the name of God are acting towards other people inconsistent with how God acts towards all people. It's interesting 
when you think about this, is that the world often divides people, the educated, the non-educated, the Ivy League educated, the non-Ivy you know, non League educated, the, the wealthy, the poor, this ethnicity or that ethnicity. The, those with special needs are, you know, are put in this category. But, but the reality is, everybody, according to God, is on the same level. Sinners separated from God. And the only way that situation can change is not through the work or the performance of these human beings. It's through Jesus Christ who came to die in their place. And when we show partiality, we in some sense are undermining the very message we say and sing about Sunday after Sunday. Well, that's why par partiality is so wrong, so evil, so concerning to James. There's a third question. What are the dangers of partiality. There's a real risk if we persist in this. We see that in verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James introduces the royal law, the kingly law, in some sense maybe even the governing law that governs all of God's commands. In, in fact, you can kind of summarize the entire law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And those two sort of summaries of the law govern God's moral standard for the universe. He said, if you love your neighbor, you're, you're doing well. That's exactly right. But if you show partiality, uh, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And James will not pull any punches. If you show partiality, you're breaking the law. Then he goes on, forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. He who said, do not commit adultery, also do not murder. If you if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you'll become a transgressor of the law. What is interesting, what James is trying to do is to show that keeping part of the law and breaking part of the law means you're accountable for all of it. I mean, just think how ridiculous it would be if you had someone who came before a court and he had murdered somebody. That's kind of what the text says. He murdered old John. He had hated John for many years. He admits to the judge, hey, I killed him. I stabbed him. I killed him. Yes, I murdered. But I didn't commit adultery. He's guilty. What James is trying to say is, maybe you haven't committed physical adultery. Maybe you haven't murdered someone. But the reality is, if you showed partiality, you've broken the law. And you're accountable for all of it. He's putting... I think correctly, understanding that all violations of God's moral law are critical and important. And while, while partiality is somewhat done subtly, in our minds even, that affects our behavior, sometimes no one would even know what we're doing in our minds. And James is trying to say, this is a serious matter. You break this, you've broken them all. I think he might be alluding to when he talks about do not murder. That when you, when you hate someone, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you've committed murder in your heart. Maybe even saying when you show partiality, if there's a hostility with that, you very well may have broken the law in terms of murder. Well, now it gets worse. If that wasn't bad enough. 
So he goes, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He says it's a law of liberty because Jesus has fulfilled the law. And because Jesus has fulfilled the law, we can be free from the penalty of sin. And the law of God, the moral law of God, is not onerous to us like it was before Jesus came. In other words, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law so we could be free from the penalty of the law. And now with the Holy Spirit, we can actually fulfill God's moral law. So it's a law of liberty. But then notice this, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Ooh. I've been pondering this all week. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. In other words, if you continue to show partiality, there's a judgment coming and there's not going to be any mercy for it. Now some of you go, oh boy, I thought I was eternally secure because of Christ. Yes, you are. But I think what James is saying is there will be a price to be paid if we don't deal with this sin of partiality that we all face. I don't want to say this in my own words, so I'm going to quote somebody else. Some of you know Robert Murray uh, McShane, great pastor. He's got a Bible reading plan. Here's what he said to Christians, to believers, okay? He doesn't think they're not believers, but here's what he says about their disregard for the marginalized, particularly the poor, in their town. He says, your haughty dwelling rises in the midst of thousands who have scarce a fire to warm themselves at and have had but little clothing to keep out of the biting frost, and yet you have never darkened their door. You heave aside perhaps at a distance, but you do not visit them. Ah, my dear friends, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. You seem to be Christians, and yet you care not for the poor. Oh, what a change will pass upon you as you enter the gates of heaven. You will be saved, but that will be all. There will be no abundant entrance for you. He that soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly. If you believe that all believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ... And give an account for how you treated other people. There's a lot of reward that will be burned up and lost. Because of your failure to deal with the sin of partiality. That's what James is saying. I think at the very end, take comfort. He says, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank the Lord. Praise God. God will be merciful to us. Even though we don't obey this and everything else 100% of the time there will be mercy, and that mercy will be greater than our failures and his judgment. But those are strong words from James. It answers the question, what are the dangers of partiality? Lastly and briefly, leads us right into the table. What's the remedy for this? You've got to go back up to verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus Christ is called the Lord of glory. It says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The, 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 the remedy for the partiality and evil judgments that we make towards one another is found in Jesus. That's the only remedy. You have to look at him. You have to contemplate what he did for you. 
Remember what Jesus did. He was the son of God. He was the second person of the Trinity. He came all the way out of heaven. He put on a human body. And guess what? When people saw Jesus, they didn't see this great wealthy man. He was born in a pretty modest family. He was born in a stable for crying out loud. He came from Nazareth. Not, it's not Princeton, okay? You come from Princeton, people say, wow, you, 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 you know, Nazareth. What good comes out of Nazareth, they said. The, 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 the scripture says that his countenance, his, 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 his face, his, his, his you know, appearance did not engender wow. He had no beauty that we should, should honor him in any way. In a real sense, he left the glory, the glorious place of the second person of the Trinity put on a human body so that he could rescue us. And when he sees us, he, he doesn't see the, the people who deserve to be saved. Saved. He, the word of the scripture says, while we were still sinners, he came and died in our place. And when you see what Jesus did for you, when you see that Jesus sort of gave up his glory, why would you ever look for glory in another human being to be with and then, and then judge someone else because they don't seem to be as glorious as this other person? When you see what Jesus did for you, when you see what he put aside to come and rescue you, when he see that he did not look at you and see, oh boy, I gotta have him in the kingdom. No, he saw a sinner, a wretch, and he still came and died for you. He still sent his Holy Spirit to draw you to himself. When you look and hold on to Jesus, that is the remedy to cure our hearts from the evil intentions that we have to judge somebody else superficially by worldly standards, not the gospel, not the word of God, and make decisions about them superficially that affect the way we relate to them. It is Jesus Christ gazed at, thought about, remembered. That is what cures you of your partiality. And that's what leads us to communion. Let me pray. Lord, forgive us for our partiality. And help us through Jesus to see what you did for us. To see that you laid aside your glory to come to us. And that we had nothing to offer you and you still loved us and cared for us. And I pray that you would help us to love that way. The way you did, the way you loved us would be the way we more consistently and comprehensively love others. In Jesus' name, amen.